सो दिस इज फिलासफी ऑफ म्यूजिक वे रिकॉर्डिंग विद प्रोफेसर पुष्पेश पंथ ही इज़ अ प्रोफेसर ऑफ माइन एट लॉ स्कूल आई नो दैट ही हैज अज यूज टू टीच इन जे एन यू एंड ही टॉट इंटरनेशनल अफेयर्स एंड अ बंच ऑफ थिंग्स बट ही हैज अ थिंग फॉर फूड and when i discussed with him that i'm i'm doing this podcast on philosophy of music he told me that i am writing a book on food and music so sir can you just first elaborate why you are what your inclination is towards food and how it led to food and music tanmay uh, that's a rather interesting question i mean but i think the question begs itself because i think there are two basic drives in human kind which is sex and food which are common to everybody you know and i think sex is essential for the procreation of the species and for the individual uh, food takes priority so you have food before you are born because a pregnant mother is given special foods for the child the child gets up and starts crying for the milk and when he is weaned from milk to grains there's a very important ritual anaprashan things of that kind you live your life and you die and the food doesn't leave you even after that uh, you know there is that uh, nice line from upanishad which says nachavitte na tarpaniyo manushya the man is not delivered uh, by money so there has to be a pind there has to be a pind made of cereal uh, grains so i think food doesn't leave you before birth after death and then the ancient said that i don't wish to sound like a hindu revivalist these are bad difficult turbulent times but uh, the vedic uh, richas say annam ve brahma annam ve rasa an is food is the cosmic reality and uh, food is out of which everything comes into existence the body memory etc and it also is ras that is i think the more important part of it and that's what the connection between food and i think all art forms more so music comes in uh, ras is the sap of something and ras is also the enjoyment of aesthetic enjoyment if you go to um, the classic text seminal text on indian aesthetics bharat muni's natya shastras it talks of rasa it talks of rasa in terms of vibhava anubhava sanchari sanyogad ras nishpatti so you have uh, a steady state of your emotion your natural inclination and you have a temporary sense perception and change in moods and then there's a blend of what is transitory and what is more permanent and then you come into a state of mind which may be joyous which may be depressing which may be whatever and he classifies them into different uh, you know the erotic the heroic uh, the wrathful and so on but the point is that uh, i think there is this connection between what is essential to food the sattva which is not the simple food you know which is the essence of food and the ras of food which i think takes you to naturally to the realm of uh, realm of food and it is um, i mean in my case the obsession started uh, where i started early in my adolescence with the word taste so you know you said oh he has a very good taste in music he has bad taste in music he has good taste in clothes and so on and good taste in painting good taste in poetry literature but and then there is taste in food so either you have good taste or bad taste is your concern but there is taste in food so the issue of taste and the issue of taste in music a uh, sort of hooked me very early in life and so what is the connection as an art form adraj if you want to chime in have you ever felt that there is a all art forms do have a interrelation there, there is lord acton's famous quote all art aspires to the condition of music so there is a there is a degree of abstraction there is a degree of transience there is a degree of uh, um, the music of spheres which uh, 
people like Newton would talk about it. There would be, you know, you would talk of lie and pralai. You would, I mean, I recall the reading in my late adolescence, uh, Christopher Caldwell, that Marxist um, who died in fighting the Spanish Civil War, who talked in terms of a rhythm which the human body keeps, the pulse, the heartbeat, and your life is set to a beat. So it may be a harmonic music, it may be melodic music, it may be different tones combining, notes combining, but you would have a very obvious connection to all art forms in music. You know, you would have um, you would have performing arts, which, which are closer to music, but you have plastic arts, you have a sculptor, a sculpture, which will remain, which would be tangible heritage. But I think what is interesting about uh, food and music and commonality and affinity is the intangibility, the, the transience. So you have it on your tip of your tongue, you taste it, and then the taste may linger on for a few moments more. It's like sex again, you go to that, you have foreplay and you have afterglow. But you experience ecstasy, or maybe agony, for a moment, and then all that remains is a trace of memory. So what you ate, so if you see, you see that Marcel Proust researches Dutam Pardu, the researches on uh, remembrance of things past. So this man is remembering something which he ate, which was given to him by his mother when he was being taken around as a sickly kid in a perambulator. And that memory of food consumed when he was very young is the lifetime's obsession for him. So I, I do think that food has this great relationship with music because of its transience. But uh, so that line that all art forms aspire, aspire towards a condition of music. It, I read about it. You have told me about this in an earlier conversation as well. And it, someone, I, I don't remember, somebody had a commentary that what it means is that the form and subject matter of music is the same. Whereas in other, most art forms... No, I, would, I, I, I do think you could different. simplify it, uh, Tanmay, as simply form and content is, takes us into another realm of philosophical discussion. So if you go to Kenneth Burke, if you go to the Western institutions, you go to Susan Langer, the dynamic body on the stage. So either you are describing a relationship of mass with space, which is dance, the moving body, the moving image. You have form in painting which where you would have line and shape and color and again a relationship with the space but which would be static the problem is that in dance and music and in food the relationship would not be static you would not be defining a form which would stay there for a while you know and then of course you can say you can set fire to a painting you can vandalize a painting you can wreck a building so but even the glorious monument, the wreckage of the monument, would give you some idea of the scale. Take Konark, for instance, or take the Athenian ruins, or take the amphitheaters in Rome and things of that kind. So even a ruin of a majestic architecture would have something tangible, concrete. The rubble would tell you the scale. But in music, you know, it is just there. And I think the line between form and content uh, blurs in music more than in any other art form because what you are experiencing through your oral nerves is a sound and the sound is what is coloring so to speak to mix metaphors your mind to into a particular mood so if you are listening to a symphony or if you are listening to a sonata for instance moonlight sonata for instance which has been copied very many times in indian film music or you talk in terms of a martial march so it would evoke a certain battle drums are sounding, you know. So the point is there is something primeval about uh, sound and what it does to you. And sound as noise and sound as music 
are two different you know but it is it is sort of somebody arranging uh, anarchic sound into sonorous music you know and then you have music of the bird singing which would not you would not worried about uh, uh, the cuckoo um, or in the nightingale and you don't say this is the form this is the frequency you don't analyze it that way at all so in all great art i think form and content merge into one another but in music the degree of abstraction and transience is i think what sets it apart if you look at it as an evolutionary thing food and music show how cultures tend to mix into each other because the it they mix into each other very similarly so no no i i, I you know you, you'll hate for me for nitpicking like this but you we use the word evolution again very very simplistically we think there's a darwinian evolution and everything evolves in a straight line sort of no it doesn't happen that way there are mutations there is a struggle for existence as darwin's famous phrase has it for the existence and the survival of the fittest but that talks in terms of a species and a natural environment in the context you have mutations which are accidental i mean if you have the molecular biologist like jacques monod whose biography is titled chance and necessity so if you do not believe in the late victorian progressive uh, historical line and you have a philosophy which is say the post quantum physics one which is existential which means that the life has no meaning except what you want to give it and you don't believe in big bang or the steady state or whatever it is then we are a uh, not even a significant speck insignificant speck in the cosmic design so it doesn't really make a difference so what happens is that you choose to have an order which you prefer rather than to anarchy and music seems to head that way now but there is in food also so you know you go back to go back to let's say the cave paintings of uh, bimbetka 15000 years ago and you have those sketches which describe a path to a hunt which may be a route to a map which may be a guide to the next person to go and spoil the um, you know honeycomb somewhere so the point is that does the painting on the wall tell you a story is it a primitive language or is it just coding for finding food so if you are a hunter gatherer you are eating ripened fruit you are eating seeds you are eating whatever comes your way so does food evolve from that consciously in a straight line where you suddenly make a discovery of fire and have roasts and grills and then you jump say 10000 12000 years and come to indus valley civilization where you have traces of clay ovens like tandoors and you have the great greenery and you have the rice grain and wheat and you have animal um, uh, bones but can you trace a straight line of evolution from hunting gathering to taming and cooking and so there is an anthropology and social anthropology of food and there is a cultural anthropology of people like golden bow uh, john fraser who sort of talk of these things i don't think that you say that is similar in music and similar in this so you have chants undertaken a cries of pain ecstasies of joy uh, exclamations of joy and then they become part of some kind of primitive music then you have music as ritual and you have music as chants so you might have chants of vedic chants you might have a chants of buddhism you might have chants uh, other religious culture and then you have church music and then can you sort of see that this is a linear progression of music evolving so i don't think that uh, human civilization or any cultural form has a straight course of evolution so there are mutations there are sudden shifts in what you thought was evolution 
and there are man-made interventions you might have um, Mendel trying to Mendeleev trying to practice in his monastic ashram and breeding peas of different colors and things of that kind or you might have cross fertilization taking place accidentally in crops so I don't think that evolution follows that way so unless you believe in intelligent design and a great clockwork and the God looking after everything up there and he is not playing dice I don't believe in that at all and in my mind it was a simpler parallel so uh, if two civilizations would meet uh, the harmonium it's not an Indian instrument we took it sort of again the word meet is odd I mean I would much rather say encounter when two civilizations or cultures encounter each other you might have a situation which a good friend um, would say Huntington would say clash of civilizations it may not be necessarily you know you take a harmonium which comes with missionaries and becomes a keyboard and a band baja for for evangelizing Christian missionary cult and it becomes then it becomes Ram Leela then it becomes Bhajan Mandali then it becomes this but there were bhajans before harmonium came into existence there was before the English missionaries gave us the dictionaries the Dutch to be precise or the printing press before we did did something you know the 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 Hindu culture or Indic culture, if you prefer to call it this way, in more um, civilized, secular times. So if you had a culture surviving and flourishing, if I may say so, without the harmonium, uh, proselytizing all over the country, the Brahmanic way, mode of life from north to south, actually it is again a very insignificant uh, thing which I would uh, not, in the, not, I would not say cosmic, but in, even in the millennial scale, I would think it, it doesn't make a difference to me. But adoption of such habits, like you, two civilizations adopt habits of food from no, each other. No, 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 no. See, again, you know, again, I think, you know, what is happening is that you are tempted to generalize because of trying to establish a relationship between music and food. There is a very intense, close, entwined, inextricably entwined relationship between music and food. But it is not necessarily civilizationally a harmonious confluence all the time. You might have a civilization where the ruling elite is has access to exotic expensive foods from elsewhere let's take a concrete example the uh, the colombian exchange in the 16th century india the portuguese we are told brought with them the tomatoes the potatoes the tea the tobacco the addictions and chilies but if you look at it a little more seriously there was a chili in the Indian subcontinent, on the Indian subcontinent, before the Portuguese brought it. Bhut Jolakia had not transported between uh, 15th century, 16th century to beyond the Black Hills of Bhutan and so on and so forth. You have tea growing wild there. You, ha you go to Gwalior and you go to this museum which we have talked about before, the Gujri Rani Kamhel, where there is a museum at the foot of the Gwalior fort. And there is a sculpture dating back to 7th century which shows a man eating something which is maize is a corn cob so you know and playing us playing something like a sarod now which if one believes Ustad Amzad Ali Khan Saad, uh, the Rabab was brought by his great-grandfathers to to Gwalior and they have the sarod ghar with all due respects to the great line of musicians in sarod and Amzad Ali Khan Saab's line I think that there was something like this instrument which probably was not called sarod but was there before so I do greatly believe that Indian subcontinent, the undivided Indian subcontinent, ha I mean, and look, uh, when I talk of music and food, let me make uh, admission very clear. My confession is that I'm talking about Indian food and Indian music. I have no knowledge of uh, Western classical music or I have 
in my youth gone through the regular rounds of Beatles to hard metal, the hard rock to metal to whatever it is. But right now, I think what fascinates me and obsesses me is Indian music, classical and folk, and Karnataka and Hindustan Khayal Gayaki and Dhrupad and Thumri and Dagra and things of that kind. And foods which, shall we say, roughly correspond to these forms. So you have a classical performance, let's say, of Darbari Kanada and you have maybe a Dhrupad Alap and you would, what would be the food that would come to your mind? It would be a food which is grand, a food which is stately and that is what I was, before I got digressed, I was about to convey to you that in a civilization there is a ruling elite which has access to expensive exotic foods, which has leisure to spend time on food and resources to have a grand meal, a grand banquet. So the emperor's table, to borrow the title of Salma Hussain's recent book, would be something like that. There's another book in the Western tradition called the Shalman's Table. So you have the emperors and the elite eating food, which is not what I would call civilizationally shared by everybody. Mm -hmm. So the plebeians are not eating it. The proletarians are not eating it, to use the Marxist phrase. So they are living on, um, you have this Kidabul Hind by Al-Baruni, and which says the staple food of India is khichdi. And it's a porridge-like khichdi. Uh, and he wrote this in, I think, about 1,000 years back, 1,100 years back. He came with Mahmud Ghazni, and that's the way he describes that Indians had just khichdi. And this khichdi porridge goes back another 1,000 years back, goes to a Vedic reference where it's referred to as a shirika. So you have khichdi, which is what the average person had, a porridge-like uh, mishmash of rice and lentils. And that's what was the staple fare. So it did not evolve into a pulao. Pulao was something different. Khichdi did not evolve into a biryani. So was it a pilaf from Central Asia which came through the Silk Road, became a pulao here? No, not quite that. Because if you go to a text like Bhava Prakash Nigantu, uh, dating back to 4th century AD, it mentions palav, a dish which is uh, made with condiments, rice and meat. Now, you could argue further and say even the Aryans came from Central Asia and so it was a Central Asian pulao which came. But in that case, all of us came from Africa, one day or the other, no? So 10,000 years ago, the millets came from there, the coconuts came from the Pacific Islands. and So let's not worry about who are the sweet, generous sons and daughters of this soil. But let's talk in terms of a space. So this is space is the Indian subcontinent, undivided from the Raya Khaibar to jungles of Arakan, from Himalayan foothills to the oceans. And oceans, not necessarily the Indian Ocean. It could be the Bay of Bengal, it could be the Kambath, it could be the Arabian Sea. When you reach the sea, you reached Asamudra Pariyantam. And then you had zones of food decided on geography, whether you were in arid land, you grew only millets, like in Rajasthan or northern Gujarat, or you were rice-eating belt in Kaveri Delta or Godavari Delta, or you were wheat eaters, and not wheat eaters all. You know, you burnt forests, went from west to east, and then cultivated land. And then you, then you were fortunate to have Dwab, the delta of Ganga and Jamna, or you had the Brahmaputra Valley or the Barak Valley, and you had the Punjab, the Saptanad or the Panchanad. So you had agricultural produce, you had microclimatic region, you have uh, people eating what was seasonally and regionally available, and food evolved out of that. So food evolved out of that as a ritual, so did music. So instead of praising gods, you started um, amusing yourself. And so it became, but you know, this is very interesting. I was listening, as luck would have it, yesterday, D.V. Paluskar singing Rag Vasant. And his Rag Vasant is Shankar Pinakathar, 
you know, he's singing Rag Vasant, not in a Shingar romantic mood, but in a devotional mood. And that is the typical of Drupad. But you go back to uh, Amir Khan Sahib singing Rag Vasant, or even Great Kishori Amonkar, you would have Koelia Bole Amwa Ki Dar, or Pia Nahi variety, you know. So the, the shades of emotions which you play around with in the same Rag melodic structure would depend on what the person's mood was, who, who was doing it. And so it is with food. You know, the other thing which led me to food, once you set me going on this, I don't stop talking, uh, was the word aphrodisiac. When, when my father used to ask my mother that you keep, my mother was a polyglot, and she would say that, um, look, this food is supposed to be aphrodisiac. And I would say, what is aphrodisiac? And my father would say, well, you're much too young to, who is a doctor, to find out now. But then he would relent and say that it is something which increases your sexual desire or prowess. Years later, you read uh, Macbeth and Shakespeare, and there's the Porter scene where it says, Al alcohol arouses the desire, but taketh away the performance. So, you know, then you, um, then you suddenly think in terms of uh, relationship between sex and food, and also sex and food and the right context where either sex, I mean, if you are thinking of something unmentionable in polite company, and the lady burps and farts, and the mood will not be right as would be for, you know, soft nothings and chocolates and uh, candlelight dinner and maybe popping the question with a diamond ring and things of that kind. One thing can lead to another in that context. So there is an ambience, and the music creates an ambience, and for appreciation, uh, requires ambience. Good food again, you would say similarities, has this affinity, I would say, that good food requires a proper ambience, and a good food also requires a person who is a cultivated palate. So you have phrases in all languages, a jaded palate, you know. So uh, you tickle the sweet tooth. You have a pungent, sour face. So you know, the, the words, the adjectives which define food, sweetness, sourness, pungency, astringency, bitterness, saltiness, go back to describe a personality type and character. And you have the personality type which reflects a perpetual mood. And that mood is what the raga originally means, ranjayati iti raga. What colors your mind into a particular hue is a rag. Now that is what is, I think, uh, keeps me hooked to food and music all the time. Adhiraj wanted to chime in. Yes. So it, it's um, it's fascinating everything that you've said, because uh, the background that I come from is a very Western music background, and it's not as academically um, studied as yours is. But there were two or three things I wanted to say is that uh, no matter what the culture, I would find that if there were convergent points or divergent points between food and music, they would have to do with. Uh, three things primarily. One would be the appreciation of, uh, the second would be the effect of, and the third would be the consumption of. Absolutely. And, you know, just like you said, they don't necessarily always come together in the most friendly fashion. The second thing I found very interesting was that, you know, you mentioned the ruling elite and the access to food and, you know, how different, you know, their food would be from, um, well, the, uh, the non-ruling, uh, you know. The ruled. Yeah, the ruled. <laughs> And, you know, that would be the same for, for music as well, because the music that would be played or commissioned by, you know, the court would be very different from um, the music that would be uh, sort of sung in taverns or, you know, sort of 
yelled down the yelled down the streets in terms of stories and folk tales and things like that, right? No, there's an interesting question. You know, uh, there's an interesting point actually. Otherwise, what happens is that the relationship between the folk and the classical, yeah. the courtly and the popular, yeah. is a very complex one. Because when does the folk get converted into classical? Yeah, that's the one that's interesting. What is the classical one? Yeah. Take, for instance, a Tumri Pahadi, Yad Pia Ki Aai, which is basically folk from Punjab, uh, present-day Himachal Pradesh. Yeah. And when Bade Gola Mali Khan Saab sings it, is is, is classical. It turns into, it, it turns yeah. into classical. Yeah. Yeah. Now, similarly, you have Chaiti, Kajri, Savan, Jhule, yeah. uh, Tumri Purviang, mostly, yeah. which the dividing line between that and, say, Raag Khamaj, yeah. or Raag Kafi, or yeah. Raag Pilu, would be very, very different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you would uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there is I mean what you mentioned again goes back to the European context where yeah. you would say what the people sang to amuse themselves in taverns yeah. but if you take the map of Europe the European Union is in a bad shape at the moment yeah. but uh, let's say four centuries five centuries ago mm -hmm. Europe still was a territory of shared cultural context. Yes. So the gifted musician would be going from one court like a gifted scientist or right. a painter or a sculptor right. from one court to another court right. in right. quest of patronage. Yes. And the court would have a circle of courtiers yes. who would be uh, people of refined taste right. Right. sharing certain affinities. Right. But people would again be breaking what was happening. Yes. So when Bach gets, gets into his fugues yes. or Beethoven gets into his uh, symphonies yes. or uh, Brahms gets into. So the dividing line between popular church music mm. getting into a symphonic mode yeah. and symphonic mode taking, I mean, again, take from the operatic structure of singing right. and the instrumental right. uh, to concerts in a chamber music yeah. to more grand to more, things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, actually, if you think in terms of, you know, you must have just seen this um, um, adieu which Zubin Mehta did to the... Philharmonic yes, in Tel Aviv. Yes, yes, now, 50 yes. years conducting music there, yeah. and he had the nerves to play Wagner there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. somebody yelled yeah. at him, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that was mentioned. Yeah. And he carried his Philharmonic to Srinagar at right. the height of the crisis right. there. Right. So, I do think that music has a universal claim. So, we don't right. divide it into Western and Eastern. Yeah, yeah. It would move you. Yeah. So, there would be a basic tune, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Which would be called Musinait Natu Pyar Jita, which is a straight lift yeah. from, uh, you know. We found the basic rhythm, the universal so the, the, rhythm. The, that, that's what Christopher, this, yeah, that's yeah, what Christopher yeah. Caldwell talks about. The yeah, basic yeah. rhythm is the yeah. body's rhythm. Yeah, yeah. There's a circadian rhythm, there's a circadian cycle, there's a heartbeat, there's a pulsation. Yeah. And there is, so you don't, you don't quibble with that. No. But I think even more fundamental is that there is an anarchic noise. Yeah. And to make sense out of noise, you impose on it an order and music is the best form of order yeah, which comes. Yeah, yeah. So if, the, to my mind, the musical uh, uses, uses of music in prehistoric times were to make uh, mnemonics easy. You remembered a mantra easily if it was right. said to a chant and you yes, sang it, and you uh, sang it yeah. X number of times. And yeah. if you insisted, you, you, you listen to these recitals in Banaras or in Pune, yeah. the Brahmins still keep marked times, yes. like as if almost a conductor is yes, doing it in the baton. Like yeah. So yeah, you mark so. syllables and you recite yeah. it like that. So I do strongly feel that what you are saying yeah. is very, very important. Yeah. There is a universality of the musical appeal. Right. But again, it's difficult to imagine that Chinese opera would strike a note in the heart of a man in the Hindi heartland who's yeah, singing to Chaiti yeah. on Kajri. Right. But there would be a 
overlap, so to speak, let's say, I was discussing with Tanmay as we were driving up to this place. I was reading this book on Tamil history. And this man says that there was a time in the 17th century when a Telugu-speaking person would write a verse in Sanskrit, which would be sung by a Tamil speaker, and so on. And, and he makes a very interesting comparison that during the period of Nayakars in Tanjavur, yeah. in this time, uh, sculpture was changing, literature right. was changing. Right. He doesn't mention food, but food also, also yeah. was changing. Yeah. The sambar came into existence yeah. then. And we in North try to see everything coming into a synthesis with the Mughal times. Mm. We don't go back earlier we than that. And if we go, we look at the Indian subcontinent in totality and look at time spans which we have not been which are just dark for us. Dark for yeah, us. Yeah. You suddenly remember that it was a golden age in Krishnadev Raya's uh, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. period, which was a great in Brahmani Sultanate. It was yeah. a Kuli Kudub Shah, who was a great musician, so yeah. to speak, I mean, who had this great affair with Bhanumati. Yeah. So I was wondering is that there is something which is, um, which has, which appeals to the people who belong to a, a space and have lived in a time mm. and have a shared heritage. Mm. Mm. So if you, you may disregard, the the Dravidians the may say that we have nothing to do with the North Indian barbarians who came and colonized us. Mm. But even the arch the leader would call his name, his name would be Karuna Nidhi. Yeah, yeah. And you know his wife's name would be Dayalu Amma. Yeah. So you would have, uh, Bharatanatyam would be their inheritance which would be going back into the play of Krishna. Yeah. And you even go to the Sangam poetry of the Ham and Puram period and you again have references to Krishna, Battle of Mahabharat mm. or Raman, things of mm. that kind. So the accent might change. But I would say that there would be still some differences mm. that um, uh, you may find a fast-paced music like Zairua music uh, way back in 70s. Yeah. Uh, that was the African version of pop or yeah. indie pop. Yeah. But there would be, uh, to my mind, a passing phase. It mm. would not be... Yeah, we won't see much of it. Today. You won't see yeah. much. Yeah. But while the Western classical, as you said, um, would have a lasting appeal because it would have chiseled itself from a folksy roots to something of more durable structure, enduring, and people would interpret it in people. And the interesting thing about uh, the Western Indian music would be that you see, you would have written music in West, and you would have a conductor interpreting yeah, that music, yeah. and you would have an Assam which would be, yeah. say, 100 strong. Yeah, yeah. But here it might be a person singing a Dhrupadala, mm -hmm. he and his voice, nothing which has been else. handed down by a vocal tradition. Generations. So don't you think today it's a little complicated also because the ruling and the elite are not necessarily the same thing? No, I would uh, not agree. I think the elite always rules. Okay. I mean, if you are not the ruler, then mm. you are no longer the elite. Okay. You'll be out. So right now you think that who's ruling the land? Uh, the Modi, I mean, Shah combined, the mm. BJP, NDA, NDA um, organization? Mm. Or is it behind the screen, the plutocrats like the Adanis, the Godrejs, the, the, uh, the, yeah, the, the Ambanis, the Birlas, the Tatas, and so on, who mm. control more than 